Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word, which will be found on page 916 in your pew Bible. We will be looking this morning in Acts chapter 8. But before we read God's Word, just a moment of personal privilege. Uh, Yesterday, I had a conversation with a stranger, and he learned that I was a pastor, and his comment to me was, why would you ever do that? How hard it must be. And it was not difficult for me to respond and say to him, There might be moments of that, but I'm a pastor at Smyrna Presbyterian Church, and our church cares for their pastors. And so on behalf of the Myers, I think I could say it for the Smiths, especially to those of you who gifted to us, we we want to say thank you. You care for us, and you make our job a joy and a privilege. Well, let us then turn our attention to the reading of God's holy word beginning in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever and ever. Let's pray together. Our God, we thank you that this is your word, and that means it is truth. And so we humbly pray that this morning you, in fact, might speak for your servants are listening. And we ask it through Christ our Savior. Amen. Please, you may be seated. If you were with us last week, we saw that there was a great persecution in the church, mostly tied to the death of Stephen, and that people were scattered. The apostles remained in Jerusalem, but the people were scattered, and they went about preaching the word. 
And we got a little bit of a glimpse into the life of Philip. And he was in Samaria. And what we might say is a revival was breaking out. Now let's be clear. We mean a real revival, not the ones in which you drive down the street and you see the signs that say, come to our revival this week or the next few days. No, a real revival in which the Holy Spirit shows up and he does what he always does, but he does so in greater measure, perhaps in a more intense measure, or maybe there is a numerical growth that more people are hearing the gospel and more people at that moment in time are coming to faith. That is what we heard last week. Now, geographically speaking, like I told you, we are in Samaria. Samaria is, well, it's north of Jerusalem, south of Galilee. Those two cities are probably well known to you or regions because those were prominent places of ministry for Jesus. And so if you were in Galilee, you would type into your GPS, Google Maps would say, go directly south. But that's not the experience of Jewish people. You see, Samaria was kind of a off limits to the Jews. And so if you were a Jewish person in Galilee and you were going to Jerusalem, you would end up going around Samaria. And you would enter through the River Jordan to come into Jerusalem. And yet our text says Philip is in Samaria. And a revival is breaking out. Now I do want to get into our text, but I don't want to be ignorant of the fact that this passage is quite confusing for some and quite controversial for many. And so I want to give you a little bit of clarity on it before we get into the heart of what do I think Luke is in fact saying. Three to four months ago, we were in Acts chapter two and I was preaching on the day or the event at Pentecost. And I made an argument that says Pentecost is a non-repeatable event. And that is the Holy Spirit springs forth from heaven. He comes down and he enters not into the temple, but into the hearts of man. And we see a great work of God amongst his people. And yet, what do you do with what we read this morning? There's a moment of deja vu if you know anything about Acts, because we're going to speak on it here. We'll read about it again in Acts chapter 10. And we'll do it again in Acts chapter 19. And if I was a betting man, I'm not, but if I was a betting man, Pastor Smith probably has already put my name down for both of those sermons. (laughs) This tends to be the way things go. What's happening? Why is this so controversial? Because what happens is many people try to use this passage Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10 and 19, and perhaps even some others to argue, and I would actually say abuse, that this is reference to what you might call a two-stage conversion, that you must come to Christ, you must be forgiven of your sin on one occasion, and then there must be another occasion in which you get a greater measure of the Holy Spirit, that there's a higher concentration, you might say, of sanctification, And they're going to argue and they're going to say to you, that's the pattern. That's what happened with the apostles. I want you to understand 
That's the only way it could happen for the apostles. What did Jesus tell the apostles? When I leave, I will send you the comforter, the Holy Spirit. You see, the, whole, the, the apostles have already come to faith. They have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit had not come because they were in the presence of Jesus. He had not died. He had not resurrected. He had not ascended. There was no other way for them to experience the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so that had to have taken place. But what is happening here? I would tell you it's a visible reminder of the promise of God. Could you imagine the people of God so far? Acts chapter one was a long time ago. They had received this promise that the Holy Spirit's going to come, and what he's going to do is he's going to say, you're going to be my witness, and you're going to be my witness where? In Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Could it be that the people of God have forgotten the punch of the promise of God, that the great redemptive work that he had promised, they had forgotten, and what they needed was a reminder that, no, my promise of redemption is still at work, and we are now in the next signpost of what I promised I would do. They are with a people who need such promise, Because when Jesus died, resurrected, and ascended, he sent forth his spirit to do such a work. And what happens at the sending of the spirit? The walls of hostility are torn down. They are torn down between God and man and between man and man, even those who live in Samaria. And so where you and I might say, when people come to Christ today, they experience both the regeneration of their heart, that is, God is applying his saving work to their life, he is giving them new life, and he is giving them new purpose. Samaritans did not understand such a truth. They might have had their new life, but they did not understand their new purpose. You see, what happens when the gospel comes, it doesn't just save us, It brings us into a family. And you're looking at a group of people who knew nothing about the kingdom of God, for they were not allowed to be a part of it in their understanding. And so it's a great promise that God is demonstrating, you are my people. And so now they are getting a grand assurance as a Samaritan, and so too the apostles and even the Jewish people. They needed to know the gospel was not bound to the Jerusalem zip code or the country club that might exist in Jerusalem. This was to go to the ends of the earth. And it is on the move. I did not answer all of your questions as it pertains to what took place with the Holy Spirit, but I do want you to understand there is something unique about this. This is not a repeatable event. It is to remind people that what God has promised will come to fruition. Now, what do we want to see this morning? What is Luke, in fact, trying to communicate to his people? He's told you that there was a great persecution, and you saw immediately a great revival. And so if you are any bit of strategist, you would say, very good, Luke, you've built it up. 
Now move on. Keep going. Why would Luke stop to tell you about a man named Simon? It seems like a terrible way after you have just encouraged the people to say, oh, and then there was this guy named Simon. I think what Luke is beginning to say to you is, God so desperately loves you and he loves his son that he wants to safeguard your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Peter has preached sermons. Stephen has preached sermons. And how do you hear them and respond to them are of the utmost importance. And so unless we think we can do it all on our own, I think Luke puts something here to say, this is what it means to be a Christian. But the way in which he does it is I think he does it in the negative. He says, this is what it doesn't mean. And then I think what he's going to do is demonstrate positively this is what it means. And so our, our points this morning, what makes a Christian? Well, it's not belief or baptism. It's not amazement or aggrandizement. It is, in fact, the work of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Well, let's look together at this man named Simon and understanding what does it mean to be a Christian Simon in church history sometimes is known as Simon Magus, or as your Bible perhaps might say, Simon the Magician. Luke is talking about a man. He is amazing the people of Samaria with his power, with his magic. They're, they're amazed. They're wondered at what he's doing. How is he doing it? And he's got a lot of attention. In fact, they go as far as to say what about him? This man is the power of God that is called great. And then little Philip comes to town and he begins to preach about Christ. And the people seem to divert their attention more to Philip than they do to this magician. They're more amazed by what Philip says. And what does Luke tell you? Well, Philip is preaching the gospel and people believe and are baptized, both men and women. And we learn even Simon seems to believe and is baptized. Well, what does it mean to be a Christian? I think Luke is trying to make it painfully clear. It does not mean belief or baptism. And perhaps that scares you for a moment. Because you could check both of those boxes. I have believed and I have been baptized. I must be saved. What is Luke saying about Simon? Well, Simon hears the word of God. He agrees with it. He likes the effects that it has on people. He even wants to get involved. And so he does. And yet, what's going on? He's baptized, but something seems to be missing. Simon says he's a Christian. Philip thinks he's a Christian. Samaritans think he's a Christian. And yet Peter and John come to town and they say no. How can Peter and John say no and Philip and Samaria say yes? It doesn't seem to make sense some people at that moment are going to try to argue with you and say, this isn't an issue of what it means to be a Christian. This is an issue of what we might call sanctification. 
that of course Simon was a Christian, but he lacked significant spiritual growth. And that's what Peter and John were pointing out is, yes, Simon, you, you are a Christian, but you have some major spiritual flaws. Friends, that's utterly false. Do not be entertained by such an argument. You read this passage, and what did you never hear? Simon repents. Not only do you not read that Simon repents, you have no verbiage that points to the fact that Simon repents. He perhaps believes something, but he does not repent. And so what are we to understand? Well, we're to understand what takes place with Simon takes place with others. Demas, Hymenaeus, Philetus, people who say that they believe have a showing of some fruit and yet the outcome is the same. They are not a part of the kingdom of God. So what is in fact is Luke saying? What's happening? We don't understand. It's a question. A hard one, I would imagine, for some of you. Is it possible to lose your salvation? Can you fall from grace? Having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, can you not be a Christian? And why would you ask that? Because Luke says Simon believed and was baptized. He professes Christ, but something seems to be off. It means it is entirely possible for you to profess to be a Christian and not be one. Let me say it again so you hear me clearly. It is entirely possible for you to profess to be a Christian and not be one. It is impossible to be a Christian and then fall from grace. It's possible to profess. It is impossible to, in fact, actually be. You see, one is words of the mouth, perhaps even a scent of the mind. The other is an entire identity. It wraps your entire life. It is impossible to be a believer and yet fall away. Paul's teaching on Demas and Philetus, like I said, it's the same thing. We can say a lot of things with our words, and we can try to do a lot of things with our hands. But if our hearts are not right, we are not saved. We are not true Christians. You cannot fall from salvation. You perhaps didn't have it. And that's what Luke is saying. It is not about your belief or baptism that makes one a Christian. Now, how would you know that? Your English translation is not helping you. I do think Luke is trying to tip you off. Did you see what happened in verse 13? Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. That's not very helpful when you read it in English. It says he believes, he's baptized, and he continues. Do you know what the Greek word there is for continue? It's that word that you love 
from Acts chapter two, verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Simon devotes himself to Philip, not Jesus. What we see here is he has some understanding of the word of God, but what he wants to devote himself is to some other man and not the person of God. That is Christ himself. It's an issue of devotion. And so Simon believes and he gets baptized and it seems to mean nothing. And you know that, don't you? Because you already know baptism does not save. It matters not what your theological convictions are, whether or not you believe in infant and household baptism or you believe in believer's baptism. It doesn't matter. None of you are saved because you are baptized. You might have been saved at baptism if that was the will of God through the work of his spirit, but you are not saved because you were baptized. And that's what Luke is saying. You can believe a lot of things and you can be baptized and it matters not. He's not saying baptism doesn't matter. It is a great blessing. It is a great benefit. But we say what at the sacrament of baptism? It's a sign and seal. It's meant to point to Jesus. Therefore, you are to put your faith in Jesus, not in the sign that points to him. And Luke is saying, what makes a Christian? It's not belief. And it's not baptism. It's also not amazement or aggrandizement. We, we aren't only not saved by belief in baptism, we're not saved if we are amazed or if we amaze others, or if we want power or if we don't. What is Simon doing here? He's amazed, why? Because he sees something. He's amazed at what he saw. And Jesus gives us a great example of that in the Gospel of John. It's in chapter two. Jesus took little stock in people who seem to put faith in something because they see a miracle. It says he doesn't entrust himself to them because faith isn't always about what you see when you see a great power and you go, oh, I want that. It's not about being amazed or amazing other people because this man, Simon, who is amazed, it takes very little effort before you see what's deeply rooted in his heart. He's not amazed by what he saw as though it's something of great work for him it's something that he wants in which he can perform himself. Peter and John, they hear this report and they come down and they recognize that these people have come to Christ. They're not there to confirm and save them. They're there to remind them of their reassurance of their inclusion in the kingdom of God. They lay their hands on them and something must have happened, something visible because Simon sees something. He understands something, but what does he do? He wants to buy it. I see what you did, Peter. I see what you did, John. Give me that same power. It's utterly shocking, isn't it? Simon doesn't ask for the Spirit. He asked for the power to give the Spirit. He entirely missed what he was in most need of and wanted to be the one who could dispense it. It's this great desire of power that Simon has, showing himself to be greater. 
Before Philip was in town, Simon was the man. And yet here comes Philip talking about Jesus and something seems to be better and different. In my Bible reading, I'm in the book of Exodus. I'm just now coming outside of when the people of God are delivered from Egypt. You remember that story, don't you, about Aaron and Moses. They're going to Pharaoh and they're there to tell Pharaoh, let the people of God go. And God tells them every time, I want you to do this. It's not going to work. How would you like to be sent on a mission like that? This is what you're going to say and it's never going to work. But Moses and Aaron, they go. And you remember this story, right? Here come 10 plagues. The first one is blood. God turns the Nile River to blood. Do you remember what happens if you slow down to consider the details? God turned the Nile River in blood and then what took place? Well, you read about the magicians of the Pharaoh. They too had a trick up their sleeve and they turned the water seemingly into blood. And so they went back and tried another plague, that of frogs. And here come the frogs. And what happens with the magicians? Somehow they get frogs. Something different happens in the third plague. That is of gnats. If you're in Georgia and you've been looking for a text as to why gnats are a part of the fall, here it is. <laughs> what does God say to them? Let the people go where every man and beast will be covered from the earth with gnats. Pharaoh hardens his heart. Here come the gnats. Do you remember what takes place with the magicians? They give their best effort, and this is what we read. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. You see, Simon sees a power and he wants to perform his own powers. And yet he does not have the finger of God in which he can work because he does not have God himself. He wants power, but he doesn't have it. And perhaps you're reading this and you're going, Simon, you're so foolish. How dare you do such a thing? And yet I think if we were to pause for a moment and look at what's really going on. Is Simon so far-fetched that we don't do the same thing? What is Simon doing? He wants to obtain spiritual power for personal promotions. You see, we do that too, don't we? God, if I pray more, you'll say more. If I read more, You'll do more. If I try harder and I'm better, then you'll make me better. We think that if we can do a few things, we can coerce the hand of God to work by our own choosing in what we want. If I have a funny sermon, maybe you'll think better of me. Some of you perhaps believe the lie if I'll serve more, maybe people will see it and they'll want to use me more. You look for the problems that you think that you can answer. So by it, people will think that you are just a real servant. 
Some of us struggle with the temptation that if I will just try my hardest to be godly, people will think I'm godly. We're not much different than Simon, are we? Thinking that we can do something and it will bind the hand of God to therefore answer us according to our wills. And that's what Luke is saying. There are many temptations for us to try to answer what it means to be a Christian. And he's obliterating all of them. You're not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. You're not a Christian because, well, you're a part of a good youth group. You're not a Christian because you go to a Christian school. You're not a Christian because you're a leader in the church. Whether that's an elder, deacon, pastor, ministry leader, you're not a Christian because you've tried hard all of your life. You're not a Christian because you've been baptized. You're not a Christian because you've done anything. That is not what it means to be a Christian. Your name on the role of this church does not equal your name in the book of life. And it shatters every bit of our desires to say, I can do it and I can make it. And God therefore will, he'll accept me. Maybe he might even want me or need me. It's not, it's not an add-on. Salvation is not something you picked up off the shelf at your home this morning and you do it on Sunday to put it right back on the shelf Sunday afternoon till next Sunday morning. Salvation is not a feeling. You don't evaluate it by how many tears you had in a Bible study or how many emotional thoughts and desires you have in a worship service. If I have offended all of you, praise be to the Lord that we must be absolutely clear of what it means to be a Christian. Our world has many, many temptations and they are all wrong. You cannot by any means or desires save yourself. So what does Luke give to us that tells us what it means to be a Christian. It's the work of the word of God and the spirit of God. And you go, where is that? This text that is entirely focused on Simon, where is that? There are problems, but this passage actually demonstrates an incredible kingdom reality. Philip has reached Samaria and he is preaching the good news of the gospel, namely Jesus Christ. There is something very unique about what Philip is doing. And that word preach shows up five times in the book of Acts in chapter eight alone. Luke is saying preaching is in fact important, but not just any preaching. It's preaching about Jesus. And do you notice do you notice how it's happening? Philip begins this revival. Philip is not a pastor. He's not an elder. At best, and I do not mean it insulting, but at best, if you were looking for a church title, he would have been considered a deacon. 
And so what do you learn? There's this great revival coming about, not because he's a great pastor, but because he's a faithful person. He's proclaiming the kingdom. That means you have a good shot. You can proclaim the kingdom of God. You do not need a pulpit. There is something unique about the pulpit, but it does not restrain you from walking out the walls and telling your neighbor, I love Jesus. And let me tell you about who he is. That's all Philip is doing. And nobody can rival him. And it's not because Philip is good, but the one he's talking about is. And he's working powerfully. It's a promise that Jesus has given to his church. I'm building it. The gates of hell will not prevail. And I promised this will go to the ends of the earth. And so go, my friends, go to the ends of the earth because you have a great promise of God that it will, in fact, work. And so we want to be those who are faithful witnesses. And you do not have to be surprised when such things happen because Jesus promised that. That's what he told his disciples I'm going to go away and I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. He's going to comfort you, yes, but he's going to direct you. He's going to guide you in the truths about me. That is Christ. That's why we don't think or believe that what you need is some more power of the Spirit so you feel it in your body. You don't need any bodily feelings. You don't need a new word. You have the word. Use the word. That is what Philip is doing. And that is what God is blessing because that is what God has promised to use. He said he would use his word. And so Peter and John, they hear this report and they go, okay, we're coming down. Not because we don't believe, but because we need to see in order that we understand. And what happens with Peter and John? They come down, they're amazed, they have this encounter with Simon, and then you get this weird verse that you and I just thought was a great conclusion to the story. Verse 25, now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Guys, Peter and John didn't go to other villages because they needed a bathroom break on the way back to Jerusalem. They just witness what God is doing and what he said he would do and they go out to the villages, not to the major cities, to the villages because they have an understanding that the gospel is for all places, all spaces, all races. We go everywhere with it. And so Peter and John are in villages preaching to ordinary people because they need the gospel. Now, how do you know that this is a powerful promise of God? Because if you knew Luke, you would remember what he's already told you about John. You see, it wasn't too long ago that John was with Jesus in Samaria. In Luke chapter 9. And what happens? Samaria rejects Jesus. They don't welcome him. They're very unhospitable. He has no favor. And John has a great recommendation. He tells Jesus, bring the fires down from heaven and wipe them out. And that same John here is not bringing fire, 
but the waters of renewal. And he's saying, yes, these people, they need the gospel. The Spirit of God changes everything about you. The Spirit of God that saves you sends you. And that's what Peter and John are getting. They have been saved and they're entirely being remade. That they do not regard people by flesh anymore. They have a spiritual mindset by which they look at people and how they treat the people. It's an incredible story. When we ask, Luke, what are you trying to say? He's telling us what it means to be a Christian. You put your faith only on the Lord Jesus Christ. His word will direct you, not because there is something so special about your particular Bible in the pews. It's the one who wrote it. The one who stands behind it has promised he will use it and he will work in and through it. This is a unique event. Please don't be looking for another Pentecost or another Samaria or anything of that nature. That is not at all what Luke wants you to see. He wants you to see this is what God has promised from the beginning. That there is not going to be a place in all creation in which he has not heard. In which he has not, in fact, known. And so I don't want you to be amazed at this story and forget that God is continuing to do the same thing. What God does here, God is always doing. He's always trying to reach people with his truth and praise him that he uses other people to do so. But I do think that there's something unique here that we tend to neglect. You, you see, this revival didn't happen accidentally. It was very intentional. Maybe you haven't picked up on this theme in the book of Acts yet. It's the theme of prayer. This church, they did a lot of things, but they most certainly prayed. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed and what do they see? Well, they see God answering. They see God answering their prayers. Do you have the same desire? Do you want to see this same God, this same work of redemption to happen in Smyrna, Georgia? Is that the way that you live your life and the way that you think about this God, that he cares even about Smyrna, Georgia, Marietta, Woodstock, wherever you're from, that you have so been captivated by who God is, you have a desire that he would bring a real revival. Again, not the signs, but a real revival. The spirit of God is moving through his people and into the lives of those who don't know him, bringing more to faith. You see, if you do any kind of church history, any kind of investigation into the great revivals of the church, do you know what you don't find? They come about because they had great pastors. I'm not suggesting we're great pastors, but if you wanted to say yes, we'll accept. It doesn't happen because of great pastors. It happens because faithful people pray. Do you know what's so hard about this passage for me? As I say, is that the kind of prayers that we pray as a church? That God, you so care about our community 
that you will reach people with the gospel that we would never think to go to. The villages in Smyrna, Georgia. The ordinary people. Do we, do we pray that way? You see, if we, if we pray that way, many things perhaps could happen. It would change the way that we see worship. It would change our priorities. It would change the way we spend money. It would change the way we spend our time. Do you know why it would change those things? Because it would change you. And it would change me. That we would have a focus that says, God is about his glory going forth even in the ordinary places. I do pray that that's your understanding of this passage. That the one who saves you sends you. Let me pray to that end. Our God and our Father, we give you thanks that salvation is of the Lord. It belongs entirely of the Lord. And I want to pray against the false understanding that we might focus on the work of God as something to be possessed by ourselves and miss the word of God. We need your word and its power, its explosive nature to divide even our souls that we might see Jesus. And so, Lord, I do pray for those who would hear, as it is a hard word to hear what it doesn't mean to be a Christian. May we be crystal clear of what it does. It is entirely a work of grace brought about by you through the work of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit being applied to our life. And so for those who know him, would they love him? And would they go for him? And for those who know not Christ, would you show them by your mercy, Jesus? For it is in him alone that we have the promise of eternal life. And we ask it in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.